0: Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moya's Jiwa. You join me in a conversation with Marina Ness, MPH, public health professional with experience in pharmaceutical market research, healthcare data management and health policy analysis. As the director of research at Inspire, Marina leverages research expertise in a wide range of health domains, including oncology, rare diseases, mental health, women's health, sustainability and environmental health. I present... Marina Ness. I wanted to start, first of all, by asking you about your background. Tell us about yourself and how you came to do what you're now doing. Absolutely.
1: Thank you. Uh, So to start, my name is Marina Ness. I am the Director of Research at Inspire, a healthcare social network. My background is in public health. I've been interested in in studying public health since I was in grade school, really. I studied uh, public health in in undergrad and both in graduate uh, studies as well. I'm based here in Washington, D.C. So I pursued the incredible uh, program at George Washington University for a master's in public health. And specifically, I concentrated in health policy. I'm very interested in affecting change through policy, uh, in in whatever that means, right? Uh, Whether it is on the nonprofit organizational level, whether it is within government, uh, right? There are so many far reaching Sources and consequences. Some of my personal interests within health include environmental health and how environmental health policy can affect human health. Understandably, climate change is a massive issue for us now. But with the the onset of COVID nineteen, communicable diseases ha- have have come to the forefront as as a major public health issue and topic. So my my research has certainly uh, shifted uh, towards communicable diseases, but. Over the past several years, I've worked in several facets of public health. Where I started, which is what I do now, is uh, doing research with uh, patients and caregivers. So bringing the patient voice to to light where otherwise we might not be able to see it, Uh, meaning our traditional established forms of research, uh, which typically focus groups come to mind, randomized clinical trials which have been you know the gold standard of medicine but there are gaps there uh, in terms of bringing the true patient challenges successes to light because oftentimes there's intervention there right patient experiences and and responses are affected by the, the questions the interventions that that we bring forth conducting retrospective qualitative research on existing patient data which simply is could be online posts, right, posted by patients on forums where they trust one another. And the goal is to find someone like them.
0: In many ways, COVID-19 is probably the biggest experiment in infectious diseases we've had for decades, if not for millennia. And we're now in a situation where someone like you is interested in that area would have a wealth of uh, experience and and material to work with. What are you finding in the COVID-19 era?
1: Absolutely. Healthcare rationing uh, has arisen as a major topic. Patients converse about how many of their checkups, for instance, have been cancelled, postponed, or moved to remote consultations while some of those uh, who do need in-person life-saving treatments continue to receive them if they truly are life-saving other treatments that require perhaps a quote like such as elective procedures or right, x-ray scans these are being postponed and we see this as a particular concern for cancer patients who worry that this might provide time for recurring tumors to grow right if there's enough attention immediately how does this impact their a prognosis and and uh, unfortunately their the progression of their disease we do see an effect with uh, clinical trials as well so patients are worried about news that trials might be suspended across the country some have actually petitioned the NIH themselves uh, to keep treating enrolled patients and out of this there is this aspect of patient self advocacy right taking your own health into one's own hands to to try to do whatever possible in the situation and interestingly patients have some of their own suggestions for for how to make this better and to keep it going
0: from my perspective as a family physician i can understand how frustrating it is for patients you know we've had elective surgeries now suspended in australia for some weeks so patients who were expecting their knee replacement to be done this week, may find that they're waiting another three, maybe six months before that comes online. As you say, patients who've got a cancer follow-up appointment and they're having their, their CT scans and their tumor markers assessed at this point are finding that they may not be getting to those clinics in that time. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, I also see things from the provider's perspective where we have a shortage of protective equipment, we've got Hospitals that are having to function with very, very restrictive staffing arrangements, very restrictive movements in and out of the building. How are patients perceiving that and how are they attempting to solve that in in your view?
1: Unfortunately, in many cases, this is translating to avoidance of care. Hmm. Uh, Some patients with chronic conditions share that they've been avoiding hospitals to the best of their abilities because they do not want to further strain the healthcare system or potentially expose themselves to COVID-19 themselves. Mm. They're turning to telehealth, uh, of course, as as you might have seen in in your own practice. But unfortunately, several patients and caregivers who have lower technological literacy levels express frustration with telehealth, that even this is not sufficient enough uh, as a fix for the current situation.
0: That's right. What innovative things have they come up with, which maybe we can learn from?
1: That's a great question. Currently, we're seeing gaps actually uh, with this. There's, there's not much uh, that, that can be done. Patients are, of course, relying on their caregivers, usually in the form of uh, their children uh, who might have more of, of a technological savvy. But even this is difficult because they themselves are remote, right? So, unless that older patient or, or the one who needs help lives in the same household with their caregiver, even the caregiver-to-patient assistance is a remote, and understandably, this is contributing to feelings of increased isolation, emotional burden for patients, particularly patients on Inspire. There is a high-level anxiety that's being expressed that goes beyond just uh, members of the general public because there are large numbers of higher-risk groups and those who are age 65 and older, and those with underlying medical conditions, particularly lung disease. We're seeing patients in our COPD, pulmonary fibrosis, lung cancer groups discussing COVID-19 and and these issues that we're mentioning in the highest volumes.
0: Are we going to see deterioration in the prognosis of some of these patients as COVID begins to wane and we get more of the kind of care, traditional care that we're used to being introduced?
1: This is the major concern, mm. absolutely. Particularly as there is so much uncertainty, right? Uh, it's, it's understood that the effect on the healthcare system will be long-lasting, right? Even if uh, social distancing guidelines are lifted very soon, let's say in a month or two, this doesn't mean that everything goes back to normal immediately. Patients and the healthcare system are going to feel the lasting effects of this for the rest of the year, uh, if not into 2021,
0: unfortunately. I can imagine that there'll be a lot of pressure on people who have an expertise in healthcare policy to help negotiate or help us to negotiate our way out of this potential uh, car crash, which is Lining up, what do you think are likely to be the solutions that are brought forward from a
1: health policy perspective? Hmm. So, as we see now uh, with with healthcare rationing, um, I I suppose a, a very simple analogy could be even as we mentioned a little bit earlier when we were beginning our conversation, the experiences in grocery stores. There are now limits on how much people can buy, right? So, for instance, two of one item. I wonder, and as, you know, post-apocalyptic as this might sound, uh, is that from a policy perspective, we might need to simply put limits in place on the kind of medical care that people can immediately start springing for. Mm -hmm. And I I know how unfortunate this sounds, but opening the floodgates will hamper the the system even more. As we've seen with uh, policies around uh, pandemic unemployment assistance and the, the specific pandemic act. Uh, this came out in the United States, a, a relief system or program, if you will, that tries to uh, deliver money—simply uh, checks, right—to to every American, uh, depending on their income level and, and household size. Uh, policies such as this that are trying to lessen the burden in in whatever way possible. So many of these policies will be around financial access and and financial help versus medical
0: use. Before COVID became a reality for for most of us, healthcare was already under pressure. We were already not able to afford the gold standard care that a lot of patients deserve or or wanted. In the post-COVID period, it's likely to be a further squeeze on the economy, a further squeeze on healthcare funding. And you're, you're suggesting that that might lead to further rationing, whether we like To call it that or not, it is going to be a reality for the rationing of what is going to be available to patients.
1: That's right. It will be a slow healing process, essentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, this is not to say that we will not return to normal because certainly the system will bounce back eventually. It will just be a a slow healing process. Not unlike some projections uh, regarding how we, uh, quote unquote, reopen society, right. Rather than opening the floodgates and everybody can return back to all sorts of activities, mm-hmm. right. Uh, the reopening would happen in phases. So for instance, you can now, you know, go outside to exercise, but not necessarily to go have a beer in your backyard, right. Uh, priorities uh, based on ways of life, uh, that, that are most crucial to, to trying to restore order, And uh, personal freedom, really. Uh, There there are so many recurring themes and metaphors in how patients are talking uh, between feeling trapped and closed in, saying they feel like they're in a prison, Mm. uh, versus these uh, post-apocalyptic imagery such as, I left the bunker today, meaning their home or apartment, right? So even linguistically, we're seeing how attitudes are beginning to change. And once we try to return the normal, this will also be a slow transition. In the same way that got into it, we'll as slowly need to get out of it, essentially.
0: You, do you imagine a world where we will start to revisit our qualities in terms of health economic terms and say, well, maybe we need to adjust those. So what was acceptable in terms of improvement in the quality of life before COVID is going to be very different now because what we are expecting, where we, we can invest our Fewer dollars is going to be much more problematic in terms of how we can have the whole system running. Certainly. What do you think are the positive impacts of COVID on healthcare and on patient expectations?
1: A greater understanding of the healthcare system, mm-hmm. I think, will be a, a positive result. As it is now, at least in the United States, the healthcare system is difficult for many to understand mm-hmm. uh, and to also under- to to understand just how. Strapped for resources, hospitals and and doctors' offices might be. If anything, this might bring around a heightened respect for those limitations, and and perhaps understanding that overusing certain services that are already limited, a greater sense of respect might might arise. So, for instance, there is a pattern of uh, you know overusing the ER for non-emergency reasons. Uh, we see this particularly. Among chronic conditions such as asthma, S- some great examples are in some areas where parents of children with, with asthma are not considering it a chronic disease, but more so a cold, right? Something that is episodic and acute, and they just need to go to the emergency room every time, right? Something like this, uh, as as terrible terrible of a situation as COVID is, it is a shock to the system to bring to light and and really show people that the healthcare system is uh, burdened always, right? Mm. And to try to use it in a more deliberate, smart way would not only get you the, the appropriate care as fast as possible, but also it would preserve the system and, and perhaps try to alleviate some of those burdens that we've been struggling with for decades now, frankly. Yes.
0: We are seeing at the moment a lot more use of telehealth video consultations It is, on the one hand, is a worry that somebody is going to think that accessing healthcare simply for, you know, for advice is going to be enough. The interaction has to be face to face in many cases. Do you think that we will see a change in the attitude of doctors now to telehealth? Because it's maybe the only way that they can reach patients in a world when demand is going to increase, particularly once the as you say potentially the floodgates are open
1: certainly i mentioned that this that this feeling of switching to telehealth as a solution is does have a, a other side of the coin in which patients feel a little bit more on their own and alone because of this so it's it's certainly very different to have that face to face the the bedside manner as you will right how does that bedside manner uh, translate Through a computer or a phone or or a video chat, right? Is this, are there going to be completely different, let's say, uh, dialogues or scripts, right, that that doctors might want to start implementing to accommodate a telehealth care environment more? Because as it stands now, we see patients discussing that they feel like they're on a, a quote-unquote back burner uh, and worry that this might only continue uh, because certainly treating the COVID-19 patients uh, is the priority number one right now. And there's there's some uncertainty around how long or how prevalent telehealth will become in the future, uh, particularly for those patients who do value that face-to-face interaction. That's one side. But the more positive side is for patients who are hoping to try to embrace telehealth and get their care this way, uh, this is allowing that uh, platform to blossom. Uh, mm-hmm. So for instance, those who hadn't considered, for instance, a therapy appointment online because they're just so used to the couch, armchair you know, scenario, they're giving the telehealth a try and, and they're seeing that that it works. And you can get a prescription by speaking to a doctor on a video chat or on phone call. And that pressure to to travel uh, and try to fit that into everyday life doesn't need to be there. The legitimacy of of medical care through telehealth is also getting more attention this way. For many, the the face-to-face was considered, you know, the the kind of legitimate traditional, this is how you're supposed to receive your medical care. Uh, versus something that's more so through a technological, you know, thread might have been looked upon as less than uh, before, simply because it was untraditional. But bringing that to to be more common can turn that tide.
0: For most countries, it's between three and six months that they are in lockdown and having to do business in the way that we've described. Do you think, as a health policy expert, that that is long enough to change the culture? of expectations. And certainly you see it in older people when it comes to shopping, where it wasn't routine practice to order your groceries online. Older people are now much more likely to do that. And they have embraced the technology. In fact, in many cases, they've they've embraced it to the point where I don't think they'll ever go back. Um, <laughs> but in healthcare terms, in what you were describing in telehealth, etc., do you think we've three to six months will be enough? Or do you think that there will be a bounce back to patients saying, no, I've done that now, I really need to see the doctor Mm face-to-face?
1: That's an excellent question. So, I can answer that in twofold. I would say uh, three to six months is plenty of time to form a behavior and to become accustomed to something, right? Uh, I, I think in previous research, I've seen that something like 28 days is the average amount of time that it takes to to really form a behavior. And when the rest of society is doing the same, it's certainly much easier to become accustomed to that and and change the, the course of, of how you do daily life, uh, particularly when it comes to medical care. So. My answer to the first part is yes. I do feel, though, that there would be a slight backslide regardless. So those who do believe that, you know, at the end of the day, I I want to go in person. This is what I've been doing for 50 years. Mm. I want to see my doctor face-to-face. And this gives me the most comfort, uh, particularly for for those patients who unfortunately have to receive uh, some terrible news about their prognosis or their diagnosis even, right? there there is a there is certainly a loss of that human aspect in those difficult conversations we've seen stories of how lack of physical contact or presence is actually affecting how patients feel so this particularly applies to those who are receiving news of a cancer diagnosis, for instance. Uh, being able to even shake a doctor's hand, or you know, if it's a particularly emotionally charged conversation, and a patient would actually like a hug in that situation to try to feel better, right? That 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 physical contact is actually a huge part sometimes of medical care when there are these emotionally charged situations, and we wonder how the loss of that will affect the mental health of patients first of all but also second of all how patients can process this information and and whether there there might be some kind of long lasting effect based on that mm-hmm. um, of course we know that emotional and and mental health is paramount to prognosis and and general good health outcomes if we take that away what does that mean for for people's longevity
0: yeah excellent question it is in my view as a family doctor a major concern that yes people will access doctors online and i'm accessing some people online and certainly it's easier to follow up people you already know and are already under some kind of treatment plan is much more problematic when you're having to break bad news. It's much more problematic when you really want to be there in person at that time when you are dealing with that particular issue and don't want the computer or any screen to come between you and that person. But you're right, three to six months is going to be more than enough for us to change some of our habits. And if we were used to booking our flights and getting library books online, then we're now looking at doing that for some of the routine things in medicine. Pivoting now to research, what do you think is happening in the clinical trials world? Because clearly clearly some of the clinical trials are now being stopped because of the social distancing and and those considerations. Where do you think that's going?
1: Yes, absolutely. So we've seen seen it run the gamut from trials being outright cancelled to creative solutions to how to keep them going. We've I've actually seen several patients describe online that those who are already enrolled in trials uh, state that they're still receiving treatments, but protocols regarding follow-up visits might have changed. Uh, for example, trials are uh, canceling appointments or conducting them remotely. Interestingly, if the trial involves an oral medication, uh, this is simply being delivered to participants' homes uh, via couriers, taxis, or even picked up by caregivers if possible. Similarly, vitals and other diagnostics uh, that are, you know, part of the clinical trial are being collected uh, remotely or being transferred to labs that are closer to participants' residences, so they don't need to travel as far. In particular, so the the methods of uh, delivery and locations, key locations where patients might have needed to go otherwise, are being brought in closer. So this this is actually. Uh, Wonderful to see that that some trials are finding creative solutions rather than shutting down or postponing.
0: Overall, is it more likely that people are finding creative solutions, or are there more trials that are being stopped or suspended temporarily?
1: Unfortunately, we're seeing more of the latter—the cancellations or postponements. A few patients who had been considering trials but not have uh, but not yet enrolled are now pivoting to consider other treatment options, such as surgeries. So even this is changing a little bit of, of how patients are considering their next step in their
0: treatment. And do you think that that will impact ultimately the new treatments that are going to be available in the next year or two? Because clearly some of these trials were critical in, in the trajectory of getting new medications out at a time when we are going to need them. How do you think that's going to play out or do you think that somehow we will bounce back from this?
1: 100%. So since Inspire works uh, so much, particularly my uh, research department Inspire, we work with pharmaceutical companies to, with many of our projects to try to bring the patient voice to, to the research. And we are getting so many more requests for research that is focused on how COVID-19 might be affecting their pipelines based on what patients are saying and needing in terms of treatment. Right? Is there still an immediate need? Uh, for the uh, anticipated medicine or, or clinical trial that has been planned, or are patients finding other ways, uh, or unfortunately, are they simply foregoing treatment? So, in terms of long-term effects, uh, approvals for medicines would be slowed down. Right, if there are expanded indications that were planned in the pipeline, uh, likely these will be postponed. Uh, what this means for patients is is simply needing to wait longer to try to access these novel therapies, unfortunately.
0: Marina Ness, you've provided an excellent overview. Thank you so much. And from a unique perspective of um, healthcare policy, but also from your understanding, clearly deep understanding of what patients are experiencing in these troubled times, you've given us both good news and bad. Uh, The good news is that some of the things that we are using to connect with patients may well help us in the longer term. But the bad news is that patients are feeling disenfranchised, and in some cases, they are going to value more that little that we are able to offer them. Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.